0: My name is Matt. Uh, It is not M. Tizzle, although that's what my name tag says. Uh, The wrong person got a hold of the Sharpie, Deontay. uh, But it's my privilege to be able to talk to you tonight. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I would really urge you to get a Bible or pull up your phone um, because what I have to say is not that important, but what God's Word says is eternally important. Uh, You may have heard the old adage, it will be worth it in the end. And this evening's topic is certainly uh, going to show this to be true. I want to begin by reading um, just a couple examples from this book I read. I picked up this book, Five English Reformers, and started reading a couple weeks ago and was just so gripped by the way that these men died. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, Edward Sixth was king of England and he died on July 6th of 1553 in England. His last prayer before death ought not to be forgotten. He said, O Lord God, defend this realm from papistry and maintain thy true religion. Uh, Upon his death, he was succeeded by his elder sister Mary. And Mary had been brought up from her infancy as a rigid adherent of the Romish church. She was in fact a very papist of papists. Conscientious, uh, zealous, bigoted, and narrow-minded in the extreme. She began at once to pull down her brother's work in every possible way, and to restore popery in its worst and most offensive forms. And so, with that as background, I just wanted to read a couple of these um, about a couple of these men's deaths. The first was John Rogers. John Rogers was a London minister who died in February of 1555. And I'm just going to read this from here. But it says he was a man who was in one respect. Uh, one who had done more for the cause of Protestantism than any of his fellow sufferers. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell and hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to where he had preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children with one baby, whom the bishop, in his diabolical cruelty, had flatly refused him leave to see in prison. He just saw them, but was hardly allowed to stop. And then he walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that they would be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even Noalis, the French ambassador, wrote home a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to death as if he was walking to his wedding. By God's great mercy, he died with comparative ease, and so the first Marian martyr passed away. John Hooper was a bishop who also died in February of 1555, and of all the Edward VI bishops, none has left behind him a higher reputation for personal holiness and diligent preaching. None, judging from his literary remains, had clearer and more scriptural views on all points in theology. He was one of the first marked for destruction as soon as popery was restored. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was led forth, walking to the place of execution, where an immense crowd awaited him. It was market day, and it was reckoned that nearly 7,000 people were present. When Hooper arrived at this spot, he was allowed to pray, though strictly forbidden to speak to people. "'Even then a box was put before him "'containing a full pardon if he would only recant. "'His answer was, away with it. "'If you love my soul, away with it. "'He was then fastened to the stake "'by an iron round his waist "'and fought his last fight with the king of tares. "'Of all the martyrs, none perhaps except Ridley "'suffered more than Hooper did. Three times the sticks had to be lighted "'because they would not burn properly. Three quarters of an hour the noble sufferer endured the mortal agony.' Neither moving backward, forward, nor to any side, but only praying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and beating his breast with one hand till it was burned to a stump. And so the good bishop passed away. The last two I will read together um, are Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Uh, They were also both ministers in England and died in October of 1555, it says, On the day of their martyrdom, they were brought separately to the place of execution. Ridley arrived on on the ground first and seeing Latimer come afterwards, ran to him and kissed him, saying, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of flames or else strengthen us to abide it. They then prayed earnestly and talked with one another, though no one could hear what they said. Ridley's last words before the fire was lighted were these, Heavenly Father, I give Thee most hearty thanks that Thou hast called me to a profession of Thee. Unto death. Vladimir's last words were like the blast of a trumpet, which rings true even to this day. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. When the flames began to rise, Ridley cried out with a loud voice, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And Vladimir cried as vehemently on the other side of the stake, Father in heaven, receive my soul. These are just three of the nine um, men that are talked about in this introduction. Uh, And that's only a sampling of the 288 that were burned at the stake during the English Reformation uh, in the 1500s. So it was in this day. So it was in the day of Jesus. And so it will be today. Christians are persecuted for their faith. The persecutions may be in varying means of degree, um, but nonetheless, suffering by way of persecution will be a reality for Christians. We may not suffer unto death. We may not. But we will be persecuted. Even if only in the form of not being liked or not having certain privileges. And so before we dig into things tonight, I want to begin by exploring the question, why? Why is there persecution? Aren't Christians supposed to be the light of the world? Aren't Christians joy-filled people and pleasant to be around? Shouldn't Christians be liked by the world? But therein lies the problem. Shouldn't Christians be liked by the world? Unfortunately, Scripture says much in opposition to this assumption, as you may already know. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the things of the world, nor the world. If anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever." I should point out here that the word world refers to the world's system. Uh, It's the world's perception, the world's way of thinking. It's the way the society is going. To be worldly means to have worldly desires, worldly thoughts, worldly attitudes, worldly affections. Therefore, doesn't it make sense that the world is in opposition to God? Further, is not Satan himself called the prince of the power of the air? Was he not given some form of partial dominion to roam the earth? The world system is under the influence of Satan. And that's exactly why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his soul? First John 3, 1 The world does not know us because it did not know him. And Jesus in John 15 says that the world will hate us because it first hated him. And so Christian, if indeed we are to be little Christs, what Christian means, then we too will be persecuted. Because we are not of this world. This isn't a problem just out there somewhere though. It's not just a problem in England or in today's world in, uh, in different parts of, of Southeast Asia. This is, this is a battle that's coming to our very front step. In fact, college ministries all over the United States are being pushed out of universities. They're losing their privileges of club status. They're losing their access to campuses. The battle has has come right here to MSU. This is a real deal. So then, I want to ask this question What is our relationship as Christians to the world? Are we to be separate from this world altogether? Are we to isolate ourselves apart from anything that's not of God? Of course not. Why in the world would Scripture say so much about evangelism if this was the case? How would you have come to know the Lord, if indeed you do, except for someone reaching across that barrier? And so, in the same way, we must break into this world system. We must reach across the barrier between the world and Christianity. We must press the lines. We must go on the offense. And that's what we're focusing on this semester is sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, and bringing it to the world. In fact, Jesus Himself said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, that it might give light to all who are in the house. Let Your light shine before men in such a way that they may see Your good works and glorify Your Father who is in heaven. So Christian, we must go into the world yielding the word of truth that contains the message of the good news. But I must forewarn you, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It will be difficult beyond measure, in fact, and there will be opposition. We too will endure pushback and we too will endure persecution. We will suffer under the hands of persecutors. And so tonight we're going to consider just that, suffering under persecution. It's not a fun topic, I recognize that, but we must speak about this if we are to be faithful. And so I want to give you eight results of suffering, or eight reasons, perhaps, why God would allow suffering by faithful Christians. My goal this evening is to equip you with some knowledge uh, so that we might go into the world and take the gospel forth, rejoicing no matter what, knowing that suffering under persecution is worth it in the end. And so if you've got your sheet, you can follow along or you can just uh, read in your Bibles. But the first point I want to consider is that suffering is for God's glory. And this can kind of be considered as the heavenly impact of suffering. Did you know that there are things we can do to please God as Christians? I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is uh, fully by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, uh, not of works so that no one may boast. But there are things as believers that, that please the Lord. And interestingly, one of these things is suffering. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, it 's about the fifth to last book somewhere in there, fifth or sixth, one of the last books in the Bible, first Peter chapter two, <clears throat> verse eighteen. This context is speaking of servants and masters, but I think we 're going to see that there's some principles that supersede this. Uh, verse eighteen says servants. <clears throat> Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. First, let's examine the scenario that's taking place here. Look at verse 19 again. It says, If for the sake of conscience toward God, or some versions say, while being mindful of God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. In other words, in the context in this day, if a slave were suffering or mistreated because the master had asked him to do something that his conscience before God would not allow, God was pleased when this servant would suffer. He was pleased when the servant would obey when we suffer, we're striving to obey God with, with our lives, and that's commendable by God. It finds grace with Him, as some translations say. Verse 20 says, If you do what is wrong and suffer for it, what credit is there for you in that? In other words, there's no glory in that. You deserve that punishment. You deserve to suffer if you've sinned, if you've disobeyed, if you've broken the law. But if you do what is right before God and suffer for it, this finds favor with God. Again, we have an explanation that says that the one who suffers for doing right in the eyes of God is blessed. As a side note, just as a preface to this talk, when Scripture uses the word, at least in the New Testament epistles, when it uses the word suffer, it's almost always talking about suffering under persecution. Not physical suffering or circumstantial suffering, although that certainly is suffering. But this relates to the capacity to feel suffering from the hand of another. We see this again in verse uh, 17 of chapter 3, the same concept and the same word being used. For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This takes this principle and extends it to all believers in all circumstances. Uh, <clears throat> the simple explanation is this God is glorified. Again, God is glorified when we don't deny him, but we obey. Well, in case, I can kind of see where our minds might go, in case anyone thinking of God as a tyrant or a um, masochist that sits upon a throne laughing at our torture, I just want us to remember that God is holy above all else, right? God is set apart from sin and therefore deserves worship and glory. A right view of our own nature being sinful and fallen and God's nature quickly does away with any sort of skewed view of God in this scenario, in fact, it ought to be our desire to please God and obey Him no matter what it costs us. Amen? Amen. To suffer some for the glory of our great God is but a privilege to a faithful Christian. And So, if we return to this First Peter text, how does this apply to us? This is written to slaves. <clears throat> well, I'm glad you asked. I would say this. In this day and age, right, there were slaves. Not that God was condoning slavery, but there were slaves. And so... Uh, The first command given, verse 18 of chapter 2, not chapter 1, was to be submissive, to obey. And I would say this, gang, God has placed sub-authorities. He's the ultimate authority, but He has placed sub-authorities in our lives, just like there was an authority for this slave. We have bosses, we have coaches, we have police officers, we have uh, overseers. All of these are authorities that God has placed in our lives. And in the same way, we are called to submit to their authority, so long as it doesn't cause us to sin. And in the same way, verse 19 applies to these scenarios. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, he finds favor. This applies directly to our workforces, to our work scenes, to school. Christian, our ultimate authority is God, but He has placed these sub authorities in our lives. However, if they ask you to sin, if they ask you to do something unethical, unmoral, against your beliefs, it is better to bear up under sorrow and to suffer unjustly than to sin against God. Point number two is suffering furthers the gospel. And this is kind of moving to a more corporate aspect of suffering—the the impacts of suffering at a corporate level. Uh, suffering furthers the gospel. If you're in First Peter, flip to your left to Second Timothy. Just a few books to your left. All of the Ts are right together. Second Timothy, chapter two. I'll read eight through ten. He says, "Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead." descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I, am, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory." Well, verse 9 says that Paul was suffering. But what exactly was Paul suffering for? If you look closely at verse 8, he was suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was suffering for the gospel. And you know what's interesting? Not only was, was Paul suffering for this, but he was living this out as well. When he says, I endure all things, I endure all things in verse 10, this was a reality in Paul's life. Paul counted every circumstance in his life, even the misfortunate ones, as an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. He had viewed his imprisonment uh, as an opportunity to further the gospel and to glorify the Lord. And in fact, in Acts 28, we know that while he was in prison, he was even preaching to uh, to the Roman guard whose custody he was under. Any chance he had, whether fortunate or misfortunate opportunities, Paul was using it for the furtherance of the gospel. And so, for us Christians today, we too may be granted the opportunity to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to be persecuted that the gospel might be furthered. In fact, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted as we live faithfully for our Lord and as persecution comes, we must step boldly with faith through that open door, proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Here's the thing. When we take these opportunities, when we step faithfully through these open doors and may even endure persecution, but when we take the gospel forth boldly, John 3 verses 20 and 21 tell us there's two things that can happen. One, it's going to expose their sin. The light will expose their sin, and they will hate it, and they will reject you, and they may persecute you. Two, the light will expose their sin, and it will draw them to the Savior, and they will be converted. In other words, when we go forward with the gospel, two things will happen persecution or conversion. Well, to show you one more text. Um, <clears throat> Really, an exhortation towards suffering for the furtherance of the gospel. Stay in second, Timothy, but look at chapter three. I want to examine this text a little closer. Uh, I'll start in verse 10. "Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Hold on, time out right there. Do you guys remember last time uh, when I spoke? We were in Galatians, but I reference back to Acts 13 and 14. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. The scenario in Acts 13 and 14 with these churches that he had planted and was visiting, and he was preaching in the city, and what happened? They stoned him. They stoned Paul. And this isn't just like pebbles thrown. These are rocks in order to kill. They stoned Paul, drove him out of the city. And then the text says, but Paul got up and entered into the city and continued preaching the gospel. That is (laughs) encouraging. is a light word, I guess. It's motivating. Verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul had a really good grip on this whole world and Christian thing from Scripture, how they're at opposition with one another. So he could... I think he would be a good one to speak into this, that when he says all, for those that live faithfully in Christ you will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Verse 13, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, opposition to the truth will not only continue, but it will get worse. And then I want to look at verses 14 through 17. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Even as persecution continues, and grows, as false teaching continues and grows, Paul's primary concern was that we stick to the Word. For one, he says it gives wisdom that leads to salvation. In other words, it contains the Gospel. The Word contains the Gospel. The Gospel message. Two, look at verse 16. It leads to further sanctification. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. And three, it equips us for ministry, in verse 17. To wrap this point up, faithful Christians must be ready for the sake of the gospel, to suffer for the sake of the gospel message. Because this, guys, this is the message that we have been saved from, it's the message by which we are sustained in, it's the message by which we grow in the Lord in. Therefore, it gave Paul grounds to stand on when he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Opposition will grow. Yet we must be faithful. Number three, suffering produces unity and encourages the brethren. Suffering produces unity and encourages the brethren. I want you to flip back to your left, uh, just a few books again, to Philippians chapter 1. From 2 Timothy back to the left, just a few books after uh, Ephesians and before Colossians. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 27 through 2 2. He says, <clears throat> Paul writing again, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Let me summarize this quickly. In light of the call of verse 27, which says to conduct yourself uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel and to stand firm in one spirit in one mind. And in light of verse 29, where it says that salvation and suffering have been granted for his sake. And in light of the reminders of verses 1 and 2, or I'm sorry, of verse 1, that there is encouragement, there is counsel, there is consolation from the Lord, there is uh, affection and compassion coming from God to all believers. In light of all of this that believers have in common, Verse 2 says, be of one mind. Paul says, make my joy complete. Be of one mind. Be unified. That's what he says in 27 and in verse 2. Verse 3 and 4 continue. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In light of the seriousness of this calling that we've been called to, we ought not to be selfish within the household of God. This is a principle that applies to us at Cross Life. This is a principle that that applies to elders at churches. So what? You have a different musical preference than the person sitting next to you. Are you both in Christ? Then be of same mind. Forget preferences and be unified. Guys, we are snobby Christians today, if I can just say that bluntly. We really are. We get to choose whatever, I mean, preferences. Think about it. If we don't like the music, we just go to another church. If we don't like the pastor's style of preaching, even if it's from the Word, we go to another church. If we don't like the church's demographic, it's too old for us or or they're too uh, young for us or whatever, they don't sing hymns, they sing rock music. I mean, we could go down the list and look at preferences and how snobby we can be. Yet when persecution begins... Catch this. When persecution begins, it forces Christians to cling to God and to cling to those who are doing the same thing. That's why in verse 29 perhaps it says, it's been granted to you to suffer for His sake. Do you notice how it's sandwiched within this whole unity? He's talking about unity in 27, unity in in chapter 2. Have you ever had a friend that's become sick or injured? Okay? Okay? Uh, what happens? Everyone gathers at their house and everyone is so sacrificial. Okay, Everyone, uh, they want to get whatever kind of food that person wants, what kind of ice cream cake they want, what TV show they want. Oh, I don't care, yeah. Even if it's not their favorite preference, you want to serve your friend, right? Everyone just wants to serve them. Here's the thing, guys. No harm is done when we set aside our own preferences. But a lot of harm is done when we take our preferences and we hold them as doctrine. When we take what, what I like the best and we hold it as doctrine, and you want to know what's interesting about suffering under persecution? It makes us desperate. It makes us desperate and stick to what matters. It makes us unify in the truths of Scripture and not uh, be so picky when it comes to preferences. Well, in the same chapter, another way that suffering brings about unity and encourages brethren is found in uh, 1 verse 12. Look at verse 12 among these same lines. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. As we stand faithful, here's what I'm drawing from this, especially 14. As we stand faithful in persecution, two things happen. The church is unified, and the brethren are encouraged. It gives people confidence. Just think for a minute. If you've ever walked by campus and seen someone sharing their faith, if you've ever been on campus and seen Christians evangelizing, it builds you up and encourages you. And in this case, Paul was in prison, and yet his boldness was encouraging the brethren. <clears throat> Number four is that suffering is not in vain. And now we're moving from kind of a corporate impact of suffering to an individual impact. And I want you to flip keep going to your left if we're in Philippians to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 Suffering is not in vain. I'll read in verse 16 through 18. Therefore do not lose heart but through but though sorry, but though our outer man is decaying yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So not only does suffering glorify God, further the gospel, produce unity, and encourages the brethren, but it also produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we are storing up for ourselves heavenly riches beyond measure. Jesus was the ultimate example of this who bore much shame on this earth, humbling Himself greatly. And yet, in Philippians 2, it says that God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. This goes for us as well though. 1 Peter 4:13 says, "To the to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation." We see that as we suffer for his sake, we too will be exalted and rewarded. Jesus taught the same principle in Matthew 19.29. He said, Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the reward for suffering for Christ's sake is beyond measure. It is worth it. So as, as we look at this 2 Corinthians 4.17, we see that the light momentary affliction of the present world is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. You guys may be familiar with the trials that Paul had been through, but if you want to hold your finger there and just flip a few chapters to your right, um, if you don't, that's okay, you can listen. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul, in a sense, pleading his case, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches." Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul had been through some trials, and yet he says it 's a momentary light affliction in chapter four seventeen a momentary light affliction. look at four seventeen and eighteen again, I want to point out two uh, things to consider. As we can think about the reward of suffering from two aspects. Firstly, this passage calls us to consider the duration of suffering. When compared, (laughs) suffering, when compared to the reward, is of almost no time. Verse 17 uses the, the adjective momentary. Momentary. In contrast to the word eternal. Verse 18 says temporal. In contrast to eternal. The duration of suffering when compared to the reward is of no comparison. Secondly, this passage calls us to consider the amount. It says that in eternal weight of glory, the weight or mass of glory that is stored up is beyond the light affliction. Do you see the contrast in the weight of glory with the light affliction? So much so that he says it's beyond comparison. You can't even compare it. In terms of time and in terms of amount, when we compare the suffering to the reward, there's no comparison. The scale doesn't even measure it. And we're reminded by Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is not in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. No amount of suffering can amount to that much compared to the reward. Think about it, guys. All they can do, all that can happen on this earth is that they can kill the body. But we fear Him who can kill the body and destroy the soul. The soul that's who we serve, is the one who can kill the body and the soul. Like I mentioned, our suffering may not be to death. And yet for some it is. And I want to remind them, and perhaps us, of Revelation 2.20 that says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Number five is that suffering is part of our calling. And this may take you by surprise, but suffering is actually, uh, particularly under persecution for our faith, is actually part of our calling as Christians. We are saved to suffer and to be persecuted. We're going to look at two passages that demonstrate this, but first I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. So again, toward the end of your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 21. We're going to continue the passage that we looked at. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, Okay, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. I'm going to stop there. We as Christians or many Christ's are to do as Christ did on earth. And one of the most unique things about Jesus is that He suffered and was persecuted without any defense. Without defending Himself. Notice verse 21 though. It says, You were called for this purpose. What purpose? What purpose are we called? Do you guys see that in verse 21? For you have been called for this purpose? Well, it refers back to verse 20. And what were we talking about in verse 20? He says, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. We're called to suffer. To suffer unjustly. And by entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously, we are to follow in Christ's footsteps. Through this, we entrust ourselves to the faithful Creator who judges righteously. The other example of this, guys, and then I want to put some pieces of this together because this may be confusing. Flip back two books to your left to Hebrews 13. We're going to look at verses 11-13, through which is helpful in this regard as well. Hebrews 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priests as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. Again, there's a lot of details in here. I'm going to submit this. This is an analogy or a comparison that is trying to put forth the concept of separation. Okay, in verse 11, just as the sin offering in the Old Testament was separate from the camp, so Jesus, in verse 12, the ultimate sin offering was separate from the city. And just as Jesus is separated from the mainstream of people from the city in order to suffer, in verse 13 we see, so we too must live separated from the mainstream of society. We must too go outside the city, outside the popular realm, and bear His reproach with Him. Well, what was His reproach? It was to suffer. That's what that means verse 14 continues for we do not have a lasting city but we are seeking the city which is to come in other words we don't seek a city we don't seek fame on earth we don't seek status on earth on earth we don't seek to be in the mainstream but we have fixed our eyes on the one above therefore we are to be separate we are to be holy even this think about this with me even the word holy right we are a holy people holy means set apart Right, We must be holy because God is holy. That's why we must be holy. Even that indicates that we will suffer. That we will be persecuted. Why? Because what are we separated from as Christians? Christians are separated from sin and Christians are separated from the world. Therefore, back to the intro, we've got this tension between the world and Christians. Even the fact that we are called to be set apart means that we will be persecuted. Again, Hebrews 13.13 says, let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. Christians, let us be set apart and bear His reproach. Let us be holy bearing His reproach. This is part of our calling. In fact, I want to give you a few examples now of um, as Christians are holy, set apart, dedicated to God, how ensuing persecution may uh, follow. Here's a few examples. If you dress modestly, you will be the laughing stock for those who live in sensuality. If you believe in the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman, you will be seen as a narrow-minded bigot with no tolerance. If you hold high the value of life within the womb, your life will be an offense to women's rights to their own body. If you believe in a seven-day creation by the God of the universe, you will be seen as uneducated and stupid If you believe that God Himself entered humanity 2,000 years ago and died upon a cross for a curse that lies over all of mankind, you will be seen as foolish. If you are saving yourself sexually for marriage, you will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you affirm that God created man and woman uniquely with particular roles within the home and marriage, you will be labeled as a sexist and a male chauvinist. If you embrace temperance, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness. If you speak with compassion, you dump coals on the heads of the haughty. And finally, if you're spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. Guys, the world is in opposition to God. Therefore, they will hate you because you are a Christian and you hold Christian views. And this is why part of our calling is to suffer for Christ. To represent our God. Number six is suffering produces holiness. The community groups have been studying through the book of James, um, and I won't have you necessarily turn there unless you'd like to, but I just want to point out this process that you guys have studied, if indeed you studied it, um, and and show some of you that haven't seen this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The ultimate result of trials, of which one form is persecution, is spiritual maturity. Properly handled trials lead to maturity, and properly handled persecution does the same thing. Suffering under persecution forces the Christian to press into their relationship with Christ more than ever. It fills in the empty spaces of their character. It purges out the bad spots in their lives. And it results in spiritual completion or maturity. Ultimately, in a simple manner, trials make us like Christ. We're called to be imitators of Him. And one of the ways that this occurs is by our will being purified to match the will of God. Again, we're talking about suffering produces holiness. And so I want to go to 1 Peter, again, uh, chapter 4. You may notice uh, we've been in 1 Peter a lot. There's a lot about suffering in the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And in these two verses, I would submit to you that the word suffer is being used in the context of persecution. Here's the thing. Sometimes suffering will lead to death, but in verse 2, in the example where it doesn't lead to death until we are free from sin, in verse 2, it tells us an example of what it looks like to be holy on earth. Look at verse 2 again. He says, "...so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, living for, the, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God." And this is accomplished through persecution. The natural progression of this passage is that if we are to suffer... We are to suffer just as Christ did, if you're following in verse 1. Just as Christ suffered, arm yourself with the same purpose because He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as the rest of His time in the flesh to no longer live for less of men but for the will of God. I know I've read that three times now, but does that text not speak to you? Suffering allows us to live for the will of God. It purges our will. It morphs our will to His will. While this theme continues. Look at verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Allow me to summarize this. After seeing that suffering, in a sense, purges our will in verse 2, there's now this comparison of the two wills. Verse 3 talks about uh, your previous will, just like the Gentiles who pursued drinking parties. Uh, Drunkenness, you can read the list. Verse 4 shows the result when we ourselves do not partake in this debauchery. Right? In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them. Guys, here's the thing. Just as a a horse has to be broken, his will must be broken to obey its, its rider, its master, our wills must be broken. We have this within us. We have this... these passions listed in verse 3 within us. I think if we're honest, we've all been there. Just as a dog must be trained to obey its master, his will must be broken to obedience. We are no different before God. We must be trained to obedience. We must be disciplined to obedience. And according to verse 1, we're called to arm ourselves with the same purpose, which is to suffer in the flesh. And then in verse 6 it says, The gospel for this purpose has been preached. Even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. That is the purpose of the gospel, is to live according to the will of God. But this happens through persecution. Well, point number seven. We're getting there. Two more to go. Point number seven. Suffering blesses us. Christianity is full of paradoxical statements. Uh, things that just kind of don't seem to make sense. And this one at first really surprised me. Stay in First Peter and look at chapter 3, verse 14. <clears throat> it says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Again, in, in 4.14, I'll just read you that. It says the same thing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Not only did Peter say this, though, but Jesus said the same thing, right? Sermon on the Mount, right out of the gates, Beatitudes. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's a little side note. The word blessed can mean a couple of different things. In the Beatitudes, blessed means happy. So, listen to this. Happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That seems a little weird. Uh, Blessed in 1 Peter, however, takes on this meaning of honored or privileged. So listen to this. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are privileged or you are honored. So we see that when we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we are happy, privileged, and even honored that we are enduring such persecution. Well, another observation in both these texts, the Sermon on the Mount and the ones in in 1 Peter, are that there's a conditional clause. Blessed are you if you suffer for the sake of righteousness. It's not just suffering for anything. It's not just suffering, again, for doing wrong, but for the sake of righteousness. We are only blessed if we're suffering for the sake of our spiritual mindset toward God, our spiritual beliefs before God, only then are we blessed, and, and, and I'm a little bit <laughs> still confused about this. But hopefully, by the end, uh, we'll, we'll put some clarity on this issue. It's interesting that even in Acts five forty two, a real life example of this, Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Peter and the apostles are in prison. They're beaten. They're re, they're let go, and it says they went on rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Were the apostles crazy? Like were they out of their minds? I mean, what, like what's going on here? They're rejoicing at suffering? Why were they so joyful? Why did they continue to be so bold after that? It says they went from door to door preaching Jesus. Furthermore, if you remember Philippians 1.29, it says suffering has been granted to us as if it were a gift from God. What does all this mean? Well, as we look at point number 8, hopefully we're going to put some closure on this as we wrap up. So point number 8 is that suffering produces assurance. And I want us to stay in First Peter and look at chapter 1. Suffering produces assurance. And it's going to tie in with the last one. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What we see here is true believers who are born again to the living hope, right? Verse 3. And then we see a description in verse 4 of the inheritance that awaits them. And it's almost as though, I mean, look at verse 4 with me. It's almost as though Peter is grabbing for words to describe the certainty of this inheritance, right? He's using every word he can think of to describe how sure the inheritance is. Look, he says, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. He wants you to know that it is a sure thing. Well, now look at verse 5. Who are protected, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. (coughs) A couple other translations, K. Nasby has protected. ESV says guarded. NIV says shielded. I'm talking about this verb right here. The King James says kept. These are really all give us a good idea of the picture that's going on here. The overall picture is that God is, well, just that, protecting or guarding those who have been born again to a living hope and guaranteeing them an inheritance that is laid up for them. It speaks of salvation pending its full completion. Right? It's not diminishing the surety of our salvation now. But for the born again believer, our salvation is not yet fully realized. There's more to be revealed. It's not yet complete, right? Because we're not in heaven. We've been saved, and we're continually being saved, and we will ultimately be saved. But here's where things get interesting. We know God's the one who has caused us to be born again, in verse 3, and we know that God is the one who has laid up for us the inheritance. Are you tracking? We know that God is the one who will see our salvation to fulfillment. In other words, God keeps us and God protects our salvation. Now, I want to ask this question. And I want you to look at verse 5. How is God protecting us? How is God guarding us? How is God keeping us? It says by the power of God, He's doing this. But how? Well, it says through faith. It says who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Let me help illustrate this. If you're a believer, I want you to think back uh, to when you first became a believer and how many nights you've fallen asleep from then until now. And the fact that you've woken up a believer every single day from then until now shows that God is keeping you a believer. He is instilling within you belief. Do you realize that if He were to withdraw His grace, do do you know where you'd be? We would be some of these lists of the debauchery, the the sensuality, the enslaved to this sin and this sin and this sin. We would tank so fast, it wouldn't even take half a day. But God's grace is sustaining us. He has instilled within us the gift of faith. And He shows us grace continually look at 5-7 through again, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is going on here now? Well, Big picture recap, okay? Verse 3, you're born again. Verse 4, you have an inheritance laid up for you. Verse 5, you're protected through faith that God has implemented within you if you're a believer. You have placed your faith in Him. Yes, I understand that. But He has given you this gift of faith as well. And now in 6 and 7, we see that while we remain here on earth, we will encounter various trials. And verse 7 tells us why. Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith And then there's a clause, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to know what the thesis is here? Trials give us assurance that our faith is real. And in the context of 1 Peter, trials is suffering under persecution. That's what he's been talking about this whole night. We've looked at six different passages trials give us assurance that our faith is real and the outcome of this faith look at verse 9 obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls brothers and sisters i want you to realize that this faith is not something that we conjure up it's not something we can produce ourselves so many people say i just i just hope i can believe enough i just don't know if i believe enough i don't know if i'm doing enough good things i don't know if i'm you can't you must be born again Verse 3, you must be born again to a living hope. You can't produce this faith. Yes, we're called to repent and believe, and yet at the same time, it is God who saves, not us. And I would submit this, that the continuation of our faith for you believers is no less a miracle than when you were first born spiritually. The fact that you are continuing as a believer is still an act of His grace. The Lord in His goodness through this process has allowed us to be tested with trials and persecution so that the tested genuineness of our faith might be shown through, through trials. As we suffer through trials of persecution, we cling to Jesus through it and we are reminded that indeed, this faith is real. One might even say that God increases our faith in the midst of trials. I could multiply testimonies, including my own life, that when believers are are put through a trial, they're brought to an entirely new level of closeness with God. Beloved, there's no sweeter thing possible than being made certain of your destiny and being made sure that you are a child of God. In the midst of trials and within this context uh, of consideration tonight, Trials from persecution. The Lord will increase our faith as a means of guarding us and also giving us assurance of our salvation. And so as we close, how does all this fit together? Let me try and put this together. Suffering under persecution glorifies God. It produces unity and encouragement to believers. It furthers the gospel. It's not in vain. There's reward for it. It is part of our calling. It produces holiness. It blesses us. And it gives us assurance of our salvation. So as we walk through our lives, not just during our youth, but even into our older years, I hope and pray this would stick with you, not just for cross life's sake, for your own sake, into your older years. My hope is that persecution would not discourage you, but press you onward. Let us consider suffering under persecution as a loving tap on the shoulder from God, letting us know that He's there and cares for us. And if we're honest... We all have doubts from time to time, right? Deontay taught last week on the assurance of salvation being that we continue. And I would add to that that the Lord in His wisdom and goodness allows us to be persecuted and suffer for His name's sake as a means of our continuation. You remember Deontay shared the story of Charles Templeton, Billy Graham's uh, sidekick in the Crusades. You know what I wonder? I don't know. I didn't research this, but I wonder if he was ever fire-tested. I wonder if he ever underwent persecution. I wonder if he didn't just go from stadium to stadium preaching to thousands of people who amen and agreed his every word. Christians, in closing, we're called to be set apart, and we're called to be set apart to suffer. So as we go into the world bearing the gospel, let us not be fearful, but entrust ourselves to the faithful Creator. Would you bow with me? Father, we see Your Word and Lord, are convicted. Father, we're scared in a sense if we're honest. Um, Lord, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Father, we know that will take varying forms, uh, whether in Montana or in East Asia. Uh, But Lord, I pray that You would build up this body. Lord, encourage them, solidify your, Your Word and Your truth in them. Father, give them... Boldness and grace to endure it. Lord, would we go forth with the gospel as evangelists, Lord, taking the gospel into the world, knowing that persecution will come, and yet rejoicing in it. And Father, lastly, we think of Matthew 10.28 where it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Lord, would we fear You above all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.